Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday people share real and personal stories. Some are profound and challenging, while others are more common and relatable, shared with honesty and humor. But all of these stories reveal what God can do in our lives when we trust Him with the details. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Kelly, from the Storytellers Live team. On each episode, a different woman shares her story, often in a live setting, with the bottom line being that God is good. Like most of our episodes, today's story was recorded at our local Friday gathering, so you will hear babies, cell phones, and bangle bracelets in the background, but you'll also hear words of hope and truth from our storyteller, Whitney. Whitney reflects on the ups and downs of living with heart issues and the emotional blessing of receiving a heart transplant. Because she's been given a second chance at life, Whitney's perspective on many things have changed. So listen into her story to hear what the Lord has taught her through the journey. Thanks for being here, y'all. Um, I'm not looking at text messages. I actually like <laughs> kind of wrote down something. Um, my sisters were laughing at me because... It, this will tell you all how different we are, is one sister was like, oh, I have this friend who you can go, you know, say your speech to and they'll critique you and, t- you know, and I was like, oh gosh, that means I have to be prepared. Um, I was like, Blakely, I'm really a procrastinator. Like this is, mm. but anyway, I just want y'all to know that I have been praying for y'all this whole week and, um, or really ever since I found out. And, um, I just hope that whatever is said through me today that the Lord speaks through me and that this will glorify him and that whatever y'all are going through that maybe y'all can find some encouragement and hope but um I when I was asked to speak I'm always open to speak and happy to speak to anybody but this is a whole different um group that I've ever really spoke to before normally of course like one-on-one to my friends um they know my story but normally I'm either it's more geared towards fundraising or um heart health awareness so I it really made me sit down and think like okay what has God really taught me through all this like Clearly, he's been there, but what lessons have I really learned? And um, and so that has been interesting to kind of go through these last two weeks and really figure out what the Lord has taught me. Um, I'll be real brief with my background, but my story starts from the day that I was born. Um, my parents had had one child, my oldest sister, Ashley, that's here. And then I came along like two and a half years later. And um, the moment I was born, they were doing all those little tests that they do for babies and all that stuff. And my heart rate plummeted and they knew something was going on. And they found out that I was missing the tricuspid valve. So we all have four valves. I was born with three and that valve... Um, creates lots of different problems. And so, but 10 years before that, uh, they really wouldn't have been able to do anything. Um, there was not surgery out there um, that would have helped a patient like me at that point. And so I had a couple procedures between the time I was born and the time I was four. And when I was four, I had my first open heart surgery. And my parents have always been so good at um, handling this whole situation. They've never really acted like it was anything. So I've always grown up just, that was just part of me. I didn't really know any different. Um, 
And so I just remember laying in that hospital bed, getting ready to go to surgery. And my mom, you know, had prepared me and said, you just have a broken heart and they have to go fix it. And I was like, okay, like, whatever, sounds great. I don't know what I'm getting into. But um, so I had that when I was four. And then childhood and um, growing up was pretty normal for me. I was able to dance, and I danced competitively. I was a cheerleader. I really did whatever I wanted to. Kind of started having some complications the end of high school and all through college. I had, you know, procedures here and there. and was on different medicines and stuff like that. And then when I went to my appointment my senior year of college, my doctor said, well, I think it's time that we talk about your next surgery. And I was like, okay, well, I graduate in August. And so we'll do it after that. And he goes, well, actually, we're going to do it as soon as they can fit you in. And that was not my plan at all. I was a senior in college. Who wants to miss their last semester senior year of college? Nobody. And um, so anyway, I, this was in November of my senior year and February of my senior year, I had my second open heart surgery, which ended up being about a 16-hour surgery. They did it in Chicago because that was where they had kind of perfected that surgery. And um, so anyway, I was up there for like a month and came back and finished school and they put in a pacemaker and things were great. Um, So got out of school, worked, um, got married, and Edward and I started to have the conversation about children. And when we were dating in college, I had to tell him that if he wanted somebody that was, if it was important to him to have a wife that was able to have a child of their own, like, I may not be your girl. And telling a guy that's a junior in college, that is (laughs) not a fun conversation. He's thinking, okay, like, are you thinking we should get married tomorrow? Like, what? I don't understand. And I was like, this is not a marriage conversation. This is just like, if we're going to continue dating, like, you have to know this about me. Because if that is something that is super important, then, you know, we need to break this off now and not continue. And sweet Edward was, you know, probably thinking about what he was doing that night or what his plans were for the next day and was like, yeah, that's fine. Like, we'll figure that out. And I was like, okay. So we never talked about it again until it was, we were married a couple years and it was time to have that conversation and we needed um clearance from everybody so I have all these teams of people um I have a heart team and a baby team and um a headache team and all this stuff and so we started the process of trying to figure that out and if that's what God wanted for our lives and um and so we had at this time, this was in 2014, and the laws for a surrogate, I can't have kids of my own, um, but the laws for surrogacy were not great in the state of Alabama. So we had been sent to Georgia to kind of be evaluated, and we had started that process, and we had gone to my cardiologist here, and he had kind of given us the go-ahead, but I was still followed by the team in Chicago, and so we went up there to get clearance from them, and everything was great. I met with like all kinds of people up there, um, liver specialists and women specialists and my heart team and certain, you know, everybody. And, um, my doctor came in and said, you know, we have cleared you for 
having a baby, but we need to have another conversation. And um, she said, when you were doing your stress test, which is where you get on the treadmill and you look real attractive, you have like this whole mass thing that comes over your head and like tubes coming out and you have, you're attached to all these like electrodes and stuff. It's real fun. Um, And so she said, we found something that showed up on your test and you have a rhythm problem. And I was like, no, I don't because I can feel that when I have that because I had had rhythm issues before. And she said, well, it's in your ventricle, which means that if it's in the bottom part of your heart, um, you can go into cardiac arrest. A pacemaker doesn't fix that. So I had a pacemaker to fix the rhythm in the upper part of my heart. But the bottom, unless you have a defibrillator pacemaker, that does not fix that. So she said, I could list you today for the transplant list. And everybody just kind of stood still. The room sat in silence. Edward was there and my mom was there. Because even when I'm 60, my mom will still be at my doctor's appointments with me. I never, don't ask her. Uh, It's always available if she wants to come. And she, I don't think, has ever missed one. But um, Edward's face just kind of went white. And I thought my mom was about to fall out on the chair. And um, because we had just, this was in August, and we had just been to my doctor in May who had said everything looked great. And Edward had specifically asked him, so what What does the next couple years look like? Where are we? And he said, you know, heart-wise, she looks really good. Like, we have another 10 to 20 years probably before we really have to do anything. And so we were excited about that. And we thought we were just going to Chicago to get clearance to have a baby, if that's something that we were supposed to do. And when she said transplant, that obviously derailed everything. And... So my mom said, what do you mean transplant? We, we're, we've never talked about transplant. And um, I said, Mom, I love you, but where have you been the last 28 years of my life? Because you knew at some point this was a reality. And she still claims to this day that that was never a conversation. And she did not know that that was a reality at some point. I, however, knew that the last surgery, the open heart surgery I'd had when I was in college, was only going to last for so long. I was the 96th patient to have that done, and they didn't know the long-term outcome or effects of that surgery. They were hoping that it would buy um, patients like me another 15 to 20 years. And at this point, it was eight years, and I was eight years out of surgery. And so um, what they were finding is that it was really only lasting like eight to 10 years. Um, So anyway, she said, I don't want anybody to panic, but with that diagnosis, I could list you today. And she said, but I think, you know, you need to go home. You need to meet with your team down there. You need to start the transplant um, evaluation process and see where you are. And then we'll kind of make a decision from that. So... We came home, and the first thing my cardiologist told me was that we needed to dig deep in our pockets and spend the $1,000 to get um, a portable defibrillator, 
because we did not know how serious this rhythm was. I didn't know what was going on because I wasn't feeling it. And so my sweet mama bought me my little lunchbox defibrillator that went everywhere with me. And thankfully, I never had to use it, but um, it was there with me. And so he said, I think we need to do that. And I think then we need to get in with the transplant team at UAB and start the process and see where we are. And so we did that. We did this long, drawn-out evaluation. And on December 22nd of that year, I met in my surgeon's office. And he said, you know what? I think everything right now looks okay. Yes, you have this rhythm thing. I think we need to monitor it. We might put in a pacemaker defibrillator. But let's just, I think we're okay for now. Well, Not only do patients like me have the whole heart situation, but they also have, they found that um, their liver, our livers start going bad. And so they had started evaluating my liver about, I guess, three years before that. And so they were watching that really closely and um, had a liver scan and ultrasound and all kinds of stuff like that spring and from May until August, my liver scans looked a lot different. And so that made us look into the uh, transplant process again. So in like August of 2015, we started that whole process again. And I had the testing done and all this kind of stuff. And um, we went into my surgeon's office again with my sweet in-laws were there. My husband was there and my parents were there. And we all made the decision that it was time to get listed. Like, thankfully, I was not in a critical state. I had time to wait, but I also, it could take three years to get a heart. Normally, it would, you know, the average for me would be six months to a year, but you just never know. And so we made the decision to go ahead and get listed. I got listed in October and I got my first call December 1st. Edward and I, um, you always had to have your phone on you, and that was not like me. Um, so if they missed me, they would call Edward. If they missed Edward, they would call my mom. Like, it went down the whole line. And so about 2.30 in the morning, um, my phone rang, and it was an unknown number. And I was like, this is it. But I'm going to see if they call back. Not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> so, but I did it anyway. So they called me back, and I was like, okay, if they call Edward's phone, <laughs> this is it. So they called Edward's phone. He's sound asleep, doesn't even know my phone's gone off two or three times. I answer Edward's phone, and it was a transplant coordinator, and she said, we have a heart for you, or we think we do. And so we need you to come in and start the process. And so we went in and 36 hours after we went in, um, I was waiting outside the OR and my surgeon was (laughs) pitching a fit because they had forgotten to do a pregnancy test. And (laughs) so I was going to have to get all unhooked from everything, go get a pregnancy test and come back. And, um, Then he came up to me and he said, how are you feeling? And I was like, I'm good. What, you know, what's going on? And he said, well, after seeing the heart, I think it's too big. And I said, well, I'm, I'm okay with that. And he was like, I just don't think this is the right match for you. He said, we, if, 
if you were in a super critical state, would this work? Sure. But you're still going to have some of the same problems that you've been dealing with because of the size. And I said, then let's wait. Like that's, if this is not where we need to be today, then this is not where we need to be. And so, um, got back to the room and, um, everybody kind of regrouped and, um, I was just thankful that we had a dress rehearsal. Um, as being a dancer growing up, I loved a good dress rehearsal. If you didn't get it right the first time, you could have dress rehearsal number two. And then hopefully you would have it ready to go by the time you were on stage. And so, um, it was really a blessing. It kind of gave my family a chance to kind of know what would happen in that process. Like my sister said, you know, remember to bring things like a straightener and a toothbrush because you don't know when you're going to be going home. Um, so we did learn some things from that and everything was great. I kept doing what I was doing. And then, um, on September, on April 18th, we got the second call. Edward and I had just gone to look at a house we were not planning to move, but he's in real estate. And so, you know, once a month, he's like showing me some house that we need to buy. And I loved this house, y'all. We had gone and looked at it and I was like, this would not work for anybody else, but it completely works for us. We need it. We need to figure this out. And we were having this conversation and my phone rang and it was that unknown number again. And I was like, okay. Edward was on his phone and he was looking at me like, what? And I was like, And um, he, I let my phone ring, you know, the first time again, too, and it went to voicemail. And I answered on the second time, and it was a transplant coordinator again. And she said, we have another offer. We need y'all to come in. And I said, okay, I'm going to take a shower. I'm going to get my stuff together. And she's like, that's fine, but you know you have to be here within two hours. I was like, I got that. So we made our little trek up to UAB again, and I told my family, like, don't panic. Let's just kind of figure out what's going on. Let's see if this is going to work. We got there about 11 or 1130-ish. And seven the next morning, I was outside the OR doors again, ready to go. And this time, I just, like, had such a peace. The time before, like, I didn't want to be negative Nancy and open my mouth and tell my parents, like, I'm not feeling this one. But I really did. Like, I just knew that first one was not... it was meant for somebody else. It was not meant for me. And this one, everything just went so smooth. And the whole evaluation process and testing process um, that night, um, everything was just, it really couldn't have gone better. And I just remember being wheeled down the hallway and saying goodbye to my family and my every all of our friends that were there. And it was just um, such a sweet time. I always say that the family and friends have the harder part because they have to be there for the waiting and I just get to sleep through the whole thing. <laughs> and, um, and so everything went great. The, um, the surgery went well, the heart was perfect, um, for me. And I woke up and thought, okay, great. We're going to get the show on the road. They told me that we were going to be here an average of 14 to 16 days. And little did I know we were going to be there seven weeks. I developed a rhythm problem um, from this heart, and that was a little frustrating, I'm not going to lie, because that was kind of part of the reason we were doing this transplant was to not have these issues, and this rhythm problem popped up again. 
And so we had to do some procedures. I had a bunch of rejection in the beginning, so I was on lots of heavy doses of steroids and other medicines that you can only have a certain amount of in your whole life. And I had a lot of it at that point. And um, so anyway, they got that kind of figured out. There were some rough nights in the hospital. There were some panicked moments where alarms were going off and people were flying in and Edward was out in the hallway like, somebody get in here. And I was like, Edward, it's fine. I'm fine. Like nobody needs to panic. Just (laughs) breathe. And, um, you know, mom was there the whole time. (laughs) Mom and Edward never left me. So, Edward went back and forth to Tuscaloosa sometimes, but they made sure that one of them was always there and with friends and family coming in too. But mom had a hotel room for a month and I think she might've stayed there like twice maybe because she stayed in the hospital with me every night and we were only supposed to have one person and Edward and my mom were there pretty much every night, both of them. They kind of let us not pay attention to the rules because <laughs> we kind of told them we weren't going to. <laughs> and so anyway, um, got through all of that. And the first year was, I didn't think it was like a struggle or a battle. I just thought things like this were normal, but apparently for the normal transplant patient, you shouldn't have had like all the little things that I had going on, or I call them little but my, I just remember my coordinator, like, at the end of the first year looking at me and was like, well, we made it. I mean, you've had a year. And I was like, I have? What? I have? You? She was like, yeah. She was like, normally we don't we don't have all of this. I was like, oh, okay. But I, so that first year I was in and out of the hospital all the time. I was nauseous or throwing up um, every day for, like, a year and a half. They couldn't figure out what was going on. I was on all kinds of like experimental drugs and Zofran and Phenogren and um, any kind of nausea medicine you can name I was on. Um, I had, like I said, some rejection in the beginning. And so they did this procedure for like six months where it's kind of like dialysis. They would like take half, not half, but a lot of blood out of your body, wash the blood, put it back and um, put it back in. Cause I was having this like antibody thing, which you didn't want to attack your heart. So I had all kinds of things like that. But all of that to say is that here I am today. And the hard part or the hardest part for me about a transplant was, and this is, I never can get through this part, is the donor. And when you get that phone call, you are so thankful and so relieved and just praising God for this miracle that he has given you. But the other half of your body completely breaks in half because you know that somebody has lost a friend, a mom, a daughter, a sister, a husband, a child. And to know that that sacrifice that they have given is truly amazing. Like, they are the real hero in all of this. And I don't know much about my donor. I do know that it was a female in her mid-20s from Texas. And 
I like big hair and big things, so having a heart from Texas completely fits me. But I hope one day that I get to meet their family and just tell them how thankful I am. And the cool thing about that is that, you know, everybody's like, oh, a second chance of life, you know, live your life like you never had before. And you truly do. You truly have a second shot at life. You're given this gift. And, you know, in my head, I was like, okay, when this happens, like, I'm going to become organized and I'm going to do my laundry all the time and I'm going to make my bed and I'm not going to procrastinate. And the truth is, you don't change as a person and that type of thing. But it does make you realize that you are not given every day you are not given every even a minute and um, anything could happen at any moment and so you need to live your life to the fullest and yes there are times where I'm like oh I do not want to get dressed to go to this event or I do not want to get dressed to just go eat dinner at friends houses but it makes you go you know what it doesn't matter what I look like let's go enjoy it be with people because you don't know that you're going to see them again. But I do love that. Um, oh, gosh, I just totally lost my train of thought. Medicine. So, <laughs> apologies. Um, but it truly has been an incredible experience, a miracle for one. And when they first asked me to do this, I was like, do I have a story? I mean, I know that like this has been my whole life, but is this something, you know, I haven't had anything like tragic happen or I haven't lost anybody. Um, But it makes me realize that everybody has a story. We all have our thing. We're all somewhere in our journey. And this is a journey for me that will be lifetime. And at some point, we'll be looking at another heart transplant. The average life of a transplant for a congenital patient is 13 to 15 years. But, and I'll be year three in April, but it could also last 30 years. And back to the donor, it's the hard part about that is you wonder like, why was I the one that was saved. Why did you spare me of this and heal me when somebody else had to die to save me? And it sounds selfish, and I don't even like saying that, but um, it's so selfless from them at the same time. And I had a friend that I had met in the hospital, and one of the hardest things that first year for me was she was waiting on the list and she had a lot of other things going on and she went to see Jesus and talk about emotional anyway but I was on a lot of steroids at that point too and that combination did not help but it made me think you know Lord she was my age and why was I the one that was gifted a heart and she didn't get a match at any given day. There's like 3,000 people waiting for a heart and only 2,000 
usually get one. And so it made me think, you know, why? Why? And so then I went through a whole year or two even of thinking, what is it that you want me to do? Where do you want me to be? Like you have given me this new lease on life and this new chance. And what is it that I'm supposed to be doing for you? And I was so, you know, crying moments in the shower when you didn't want your husband to hear you or you were two o'clock in the morning in the floor of your closet crying going what am I supposed to do am I really just supposed to be a Tuscaloosa Alabama uh shouldn't I be like in Africa creating a home or orphanage or like doing something something big am I supposed to be traveling around speaking like what am I supposed to be doing and I finally realized that you can be doing exactly what he wants you to do anywhere you are. And just because I'm not healing children in Africa or building a school somewhere and working at a little cute stationery store in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, that I can still have an impact on somebody and I can still be doing what he wants me to be doing. One day, does he have big plans for me like that? Maybe. I don't know. But I am at peace with that now. And so I think through all of this, the things that I've learned and the three words that stayed with me the whole time and continue to stay are peace, patience, and perseverance. And I, from the very beginning, had an overwhelming peace about this whole situation. I knew that God had this and whatever happened, whether I got a heart or I didn't have a heart, that it was his plan. And I was 100% okay with that. You need a lot of patience sometimes. The waiting is not always easy. There were weeks where I didn't even think about it. And then there's days going, I just want to know, like, just tell me if I'm going to get one or not. And I can be good with that. I just want to know. I just want the plan. Um, And he talks about in the Bible how, you know, you have to wait patiently and um, he will he will answer your prayers when it's in his time. And then perseverance, because there are a lot of nights in that hospital where I was in so much pain and they could not get it stopped or my heart was literally beating 200 and something beats a minute and like I said bells and whistles and all kinds of alarms were going off and they wanted to do like immediate surgery and then the next minute my rhythm had dropped below 40 beats a minute and they wanted to put in a pacemaker to make sure that it was beating fast enough. So. We had some crazy times like that, but you do, you have to, he gives you the strengths. He'll renew your strength, um, and he wants you to persevere and just endure all of that, and he never can give you more than you can handle. Um, And then the other thing that kept coming to me the whole time was, great is thy faithfulness, and, you know, new mercies I see in the morning. And that was so true because one day we would have a crazy day and the next day it would be a moment of peace. And I remember for the like one time that I was left for like an hour by myself because <laughs> they didn't leave me. Um, 
you had to do 20 laps around the hospital unit um, a day. And I was doing my laps by myself. And I remember passing my door and tears just started streaming down my face. And the nurse was like, are you okay? Do you need help? And I was like, I'm good. Just need a moment. I'm good. But I realized I can breathe on my own. This is not hard. This is... I'm not completely healed, but I can breathe. And y'all, that was huge. I didn't realize like how bad I had felt. I thought I had felt fine, but apparently I did not. And I was having trouble breathing every day and didn't even realize that. And when I was doing my laps that one day in the hospital, just realized that. And it just makes it all worth it, knowing that he has a plan for you and, um, so anyway, our, that was kind of our heart journey. And like I said, it's a continuing journey. But another chapter of our life is the baby situation again. And my sweet friends in this room probably don't even know all this. But um, we have started that process again. And this has been an interesting process so far because... <laughs> Although I'm very thankful that if we want to pursue children, the opportunity is there. It's not a great outlook. I have menopausal ovaries. Um, And if you're over 35, you're geriatric to have a baby. Um, But I'll be 36 in November. And the chance to try is there, which most people... There are probably people in this room that have dealt with infertility or been in some kind of situation with children, but most people would be jumping for joy getting that news. And I was in that office when she told us that all our tests had come back normal, and if we wanted to try, we could. Um, And my heart kind of sank a little bit, I have to be real honest, because I don't know that I want kids and I have always been again at peace and 100% at peace with if God wants us to I'm good with that if you don't I have goddaughters and nephews and godsons and all my littles that I just love and those can be my babies Um, but Edward has voiced that he wants kids and I I love that about him I love that he's honest with me and I love that um I could see him with kids you know just he's so good with our nephews and everything but it's crazy because for the first time in our marriage we are on opposite ends of the spectrum which I'm not even worried about the children part but we'll be married almost 10 years in March and we are I'm on one end saying I'm really selfish and I like my life the way it is. I don't have to get up in the morning. I don't have a baby crying in the middle of the night. If I want to go to the beach tomorrow, I can. I don't have to find a babysitter. And I'm like, Edward, do you realize like how our life will change? He's like, yeah, you know, he don't worry about anything. And I mean, I don't either. But um, and so I'm interested to see where God takes us and what this next chapter is, whether kids will be there or kids will not, or adoption comes or foster, maybe we'll be foster parents. I don't know. But um, 
you know, we've never been, like I said, never been on the opposite sides of anything. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how God uses that and brings us together in our marriage to come to an answer that we are both 100% okay with and 100% not compromising for each other. Because that, I think, can be so dangerous in a marriage in the future, saying, you know, 10 years later saying, well, you're the one that didn't want to have kids or you're the one that made me do this, you know, so I never want to get to that point. So that is what we are currently working through. Um, so like I said, it is a journey. There are many more chapters probably to be had and I'm excited to see where it goes. Um, I do want to close with this great is thy faithfulness because that was just, well, two things actually. Um, Psalm 121, I, I call it my verse. You probably don't even know this, Miss Kathy, but Miss Kathy, when I was trying out for eighth grade cheerleading, because you know, at eighth grade cheerleading, that is the only thing in life at that point, you know, whether you're going to make the cheerleading team or not. And she gave me this little goodie bag. And on the goodie bag, it had Psalm 121. And that has been my verse since that day. And it's <laughs> and it says, I will lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help come from the Lord which made heaven and earth. He will not only suffer thy foot to be moved, he will keep thy from will not slumber. Behold that oh, y'all, sorry, this version. Behold that he keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from evil, and shall preserve the soul. The Lord shall preserve the going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even evermore. And that scripture has just hung with me throughout everything in life. And um, <laughs> I do have to tell y'all one funny story when we were in the hospital. Day 28. Day 28 got us. And it was a Saturday and called to order breakfast. It took me an hour in the morning to take all my pills and an hour at night to take all of them. And I felt like all I did was take medicine. Like by the time I finished taking something else, I had to, you know, taking one thing, I had to take something else. And I was so sick that like the even thought of trying to keep something down was not fun. And nothing tasted normal. Nothing. Cheerios. Didn't even like milk. But Cheerios worked. Avocado toast worked. A ice latte. Now I'm addicted. And a sweet potato. And that was about all I could eat for a year and a half. But day 28, I called to order a piece of toast. And I wanted some cheese grits. Because I thought, mm, that sounds good. I'll try that. Because I had to eat before I took my medicine or I was really sick. And the girl said, well, I can get you your toast, but no cheese on those grits. And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, not on your diet. I was like, okay. So I hung up the phone and y'all, tears. Just streaming tears. Could not control it. Was like so upset. I called my nurse and she was like, what is wrong? I said, they told me I couldn't have cheese grits. All I want is cheese grits. And she was like, Whitney, she said, my menu had been changed. What do you mean my menu? Like I can't even eat anything. What kind of menu is this? And so apparently they had like changed my diet and you know, the food people will not 
um, they will not do anything unless it's on your diet. Well, apparently cheese was one of those things or something. So I could have plain grits, but I couldn't have cheese grits. And I was like, I don't care that it has been changed. I just want to know. I just want to know everything that's going on. And that was the biggest thing is as long as we had a plan, I could get through the next minute. Now, I may have a plan for five minutes, and it might have completely changed by the time they did afternoon rounds. But that was okay with me. As long as we had some kind of plans then I was good. But that morning, tears. I mean, they started and they did not stop. When they came to do rounds, my nurses had told me, you know, you've been in here for 28 days. I didn't realize that. But she was like, you've been in here for 28 days and it is time for you to get out and see the sun. And maybe we'll be able to take you to the rooftop. I was like, okay. That sounds good. And so my doctors came in. I'm trying to, like, literally keep it together. And I have this rhythm issue that's going on. And he said, yeah, mm -mm. going outside is not a possibility. Y'all lost it. Tears again, just puddles of tears. And he was like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, it's it's nothing you've said. I was like, they just told me I couldn't have cheese crisps this morning. And, and I was like, I just like to know the plan. And it's just day 28, apparently. And I just, it's just not good. He was like, okay. So they leave and my nurse comes back in there and she's like, Whitney, we're going to get this figured out. We're going to take you outside. And y'all, those nurses fought for me that day they went to my doctors and said we have got to get this girl outside like we have got to she has got to leave her room and so we they came back in and they were not happy about it but they said that's fine you have to take a defibrillator with you so we had a wheelchair with a defibrillator in it Uh I was walking Edward was walking we had two nurses and they allowed me 20 minutes and y'all it was probably the best thing that I could have done 20 minutes on that rooftop sitting there with my mask on and all these connections in a wheelchair with the defibrillator we were a hot mess but it was the best thing I needed that to renew my spirit and those nurses fought for me just like the Lord fights for us and again Miss Kathy came to the rescue she came in that day and I told mom I was we came back from our walk or whatever and I just literally still could not get it together I mean just like I said the floodgates opened and they did not stop for at least eight or ten hours and um my dad had called me I couldn't talk to him I was like dad I'm fine I don't know and he was like okay okay you know what guys don't know what to do with crying girls and Edward and my mom were there and we had come back from our little walk and I was like you know what I just need a minute I said I've been here for 28 days I love y'all y'all have not left my side but it's time for you to leave my side. I said, I need a moment. And so I was like, I don't care if y'all just sit in the hallway, but y'all need to sit in the hallway. Y'all need to do something, go eat some food, get a coffee. I need a break. Just get out of here. Just get out of here. I love y'all, but it's time to go. And in that, Miss Kathy shows up and, and mom was like, well, Miss Kathy's here. And I was like, oh, it's fine. As long as she doesn't see me, as long as she doesn't care that I'm crying, she can come in. 
because Miss Kathy is the funniest person ever. And God knew that I needed <laughs> that that day. And she came in and we laughed and cried. And I mean, literally my face was so swollen and just red all day. And I just could not stop the tears. But anyway, that was day 28. <laughs> there was, I think the only other time that mom and I got into it, we did really good. We did really good to be in a small room because there were at times where for one week, I couldn't leave my room, so that was fun. Um, I literally could get up and go to the bathroom and come back, but I could not leave my room for a solid seven days. And um, Mom and I did, we did really well. There was one time I said something to her. I don't remember what, but I said something to her, and she didn't talk to me for the rest of the day. And I kept saying, I said, I said, Edward, I don't, I was like, she's not talking to me. I've made her mad. She's just over there doing her stocking, you know, as fast as she can. And I was like, I would say something, you know, Mom, what do you want for dinner? Fine. I'm fine. You know, and she's like me. She likes to pretend that she's not like me, but she's like me. I get it. I get it straight from her. We're a little stubborn, and we have to pout for a little bit before we can get over something. And she was over there just doing her needle pointing, and and she said, fine, I'm fine. I said, Edward, I don't know what to do. She won't talk to me. I said, I've apologized. I've, you know, I don't even know what I said, but she's mad at me. But anyway, other than that, Mom and I did really well for seven weeks, and then she had to live with me another three or four weeks they didn't release me to go back to Tuscaloosa till then but anyway so that's just a fun little story about day 28 and getting along with your mom and because steroids are not fun they can make you ugly and mean and cry but I think I did pretty good um but anyway I just thank y'all for being here today and hope that something that I've said has hit home with y'all. Um, but I do want to close with greatest thy faithfulness because this song, there are so many times where in the middle of the night, my heart would be just racing. I was going, okay, God, it's okay. And I would just touch my little heart and say, I know that you have been ripped from your home, but I promise I'm going to make a good home for you. You just need to settle down. And so we would just breathe. We'd have deep breaths. And I would just talk to her and say, it's going to be okay. You're going to love it here eventually. (laughs) And she did make me love desserts. I did not love desserts before, but that is something I got is a love for desserts. And so, you know, we would just breathe together and eventually she'd settle down a little bit. And I just told her that her new home was going to be okay. And and we've, we've worked out our differences. But um, it says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thou compassions they not fail. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Lord, every morning new mercies I see and all that I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me, so faithful to me. So anyway... 
thank you for listening in for Whitney's story. And I love the point she kind of just threw in there at the end, but just how she's expecting to see God move in their marriage. So many times when we are on opposite ends of the spectrum, I know I get angry at my husband for just not seeing my point of view and not being on my side. But Whitney does not see this as an obstacle, but more as a chance to see God work in their marriage and bring them together. And so it's changing from, Lord, get him onto my page to get us onto the same page. And yes, my voice is cracking in between recording the intro and the outro. I have lost my voice. But anyway, we're so glad you've tuned in. Be sure to check our website. It's storytellerslive.org. And then also, as always, we appreciate any reviews or ratings that you can give us on iTunes. You're listening to Storytellers Live, and we hope you'll join us again next week.